um, out of Fob Wilson, and we're going to uh, a new Fob, very new Fob that they had just just put on ground called Ramrod, and that was controlled by Fourth Infantry Division, and um, we had we were the last vehicle to go through in the convoy, is what I was told, but I don't remember it that way, but. Anyway, from what I was told, we were the last vehicle in what we thought was a was a culvert, and we thought we thought we saw some wires protruding from there, and we ended up getting hit with I think it was like eight to twelve hundred pounds of homemade explosive. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you, and we will talk to you soon. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talk with Brandon Stackenwalt. He is an army sapper who was wounded in action in Afghanistan. I met him during a combat wounded veterans challenge sailing trip in Galveston, Texas. We talk about growing up in South Dakota, his life in the army, being wounded, and what it means to help others. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, I'm back with my friend Brandon, who I met at about two years ago almost come September at a sailing event in Galveston. Brandon, I feel horrible because I do not know how to pronounce your last name right. What say hello? Stackenwalt. Stackenwalt. Yeah, it's almost like it's spelled almost like it sounds. It's pretty unique. You know, there's so many people out there who have names that look like they're said one way. And then when you say them that way, they're like, no, it's said this way. And you're like, wait, how how did you make that connection? So Brandon and I, like I said, we met at a sailing event over in Galveston um, nearly two years ago. Then we just reconnected back in what, late April? Yeah. So Brandon, say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. Greetings from South Dakota. Yes, Brandon is up near where I want to end up. We were just talking before we started recording. I'm looking at a place that's, what, about 90 miles east of you or west of you? Yeah, 90 miles south, southwest. Nice. So did you grow up in um, South Dakota? Most of my life, yeah. So let's start at the beginning. So you were Army, right? Yeah. I was. So did you always want to join the military as a kid? Actually, yeah. Uh, ever since my great-grandfather was in Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. Did he? Uh, was he one of the guys who just kind of never talked about it? Or did he tell you guys stories? He would tell us younger kids stories, only more the, like the boys, not really the girls. So did you come from a big family then? I did. Nice. So you're a lot younger than me. I know that's hard to believe because I'm so young. Now, um, talk to me about growing up in South Dakota. What was that like? Well, a lot of, you know, I got a lot of flack, you know, my younger years, you know, being when I first joined, people were like, 
oh, horses and buggies. And I'm like, no, I'm not Amish. I'm not. I was born in Pennsylvania, and I know people talk about like that and horses and buggies and stuff, but no, we're just as technological as as any state. And you know, we, you know, growing up was was just fantastic. I have Mount Rushmore in my backyard. I have Spearfish Canyon. I have Crazy Horse. I have all sorts of things to just mess around with. So growing up here was very outdoorsy. I was I was going to ask that. Were you a little adventure guy who uh, uh, did was, a lot of camping uh, and did you do a lot of oh hunting? yeah camping, hiking, hunting, fishing, we anything you can think of out here, you, we can we can do it. So going to school, were you athletic then? Yeah, I played football and basketball and uh, did some track and stuff. So, like you said, you you kind of had an inkling about the military as as a kid. So, you're how old right now? 33. 33. Okay. So just trying to get a point of reference for uh, 9-11. So you were what, 14-ish when uh, 9-11 happened? Yeah, something like that. I was I was uh, my last year in, uh, right before I started high school. Okay. So when, do you remember it happening? Yeah, I do. I remember exactly where I was. So what was that like for you? Uh, it was very unique. I was uh, one of the few students uh with another friend of mine his also his name is also brandon and um we were sitting downstairs in our class we were the only two in there besides the teacher and he always let us in early because we're kind of the good guys and helped him out do stuff in the mornings and stuff like that and we actually were watching the news because he had a tv on in his room all the time and we actually saw the report on the first plane while this, we witnessed the second plane hitting in. Oh, wow. So what was that like for you guys? You know, your eighth grade going into ninth grade? Well, it was very unique. Everybody's eyes were glued to just like the moment and the time. And it was like all day. It was just like time stood still. And everybody was just like glued and wondering what was going on. And Others that had family over there were were trying to communicate with everybody and, you know, stay in touch with what was going on. So did you, um, did that affect you deeply at at that age? Do you remember, um, obviously you still remember what was going on, but in the days following, did it, did it resonate with you that something big was about to change in the world or were you guys just back to your normal routines well we were always cautious and and what was going on um a lot of us had um family that was military so we know and understood that not everything's always on normal we we always had to be wondering what was going on and we always had to be careful of our surroundings because we didn't know so of course we're always on guard at those times yeah and South Dakota, I always forget that South Dakota is a pretty decent sized military state. Um, you have a lot of Air it Force is. up there. Yeah, uh, I live right next door on Air Force Base. I have a lot of friends who are Air Force. And we also still have those Minuteman missile sites which people start uh forget about. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up next is that's in that whole area of South Dakota. I, I don't know if Montana has them, but South Dakota, Kansas... Wyoming, Nebraska, all have those ICBM nuke sites. Uh, Montana does, too, to my knowledge. I think it's over near uh, western part of Montana. I believe it's closer to Billings, but in those areas, yes. 
Yeah. So, and a lot of people don't realize that, like you said, they're, they're forgotten relics of the Cold War. I mean, I think the only time people talk about them is apparently you can buy old nuke sites and turn them into condos or houses. Well, stranger things have been done. Yes. Uh, talk about instead of building up, we're going to build down. Um, so as you're going through high school, you know, the war is going on in the background by 2003, we're invading Iraq and you're probably what at that time, 15, 16 ish. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, this is a strange thing. Um, I've learned through my years that not everybody's bad. And we actually had a foreign exchange student from Iraq oh, at wow. the time when I was in high school. So what was that like? I mean, we're in a war with Iraq and you have an exchange student from Iraq. Well, she was, she was, uh, uh, she grew, she was born there and spent a lot of her life there. But um, before the war even started, she was uh, over here here in California. I think we lost Brandon. Yeah, or Brandon say California or somewhere on the here in the US before the war even started. So oh okay, okay. So um but did you guys have a chance to talk with her and like ask her what was going on or did any of that discussion ever come up while you guys were in class or anything? Well we did we we did question it and we asked you know what um what was going on and how how people were dealing with it and what their families were going through overseas because you, you can't consider just yourselves you have to wonder about everybody i mean all of all of the people that we had we had exchange students from germany from russia from iraq i mean so we so we had to we had to consider them as well just because we had grown around them and so we have to we had to you know wonder what was going on with them and, and protect them as well because they were protecting us in a way too yeah so um 18 hits you you're you're ready to go off how did you decide the army well my uncles a lot of my uncles served in uh army and uh you know, so I, I just picked Army because I just wanted to do something good. So did you go right out of high school? Did you delayed entry or did you wait a little no, bit? No, I, I went right out of high school, yes. So what was your MOS? 12 Bravo, combat engineer. Okay, that's right. I think you actually told me that. So you were still, um, I know people get weird about infantry and people other than grunts, but... Combat engineer is still basically an element of the infantry. Uh, I guess you could say that and uh, EOD. Or combat arms. Kind of like cross between. You're more combat arms than you are anything else, though, right? Right, right. So where did they end up sending you for boot camp? I was uh, sent to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Um, got a personal <laughs> B. I always have to make fun of my uh, friends who live in Missouri. So actually not too far away from where you are. About 12 hours probably driving if you had to drive down there. Yeah, about. So um, as you were going 
through your recruitment process? Did they do anything with you guys? Like, um, I know the Marines do a lot of uh, what they call pulley events where they're making sure people stay in shape. Or did you just sign up, finish high school, and then show up to get on the bus or the plane to go to boot camp? Well, at a, I just joined out of high school. So they did all the processing and sent me right on over. And I went to Missouri and did, did several months training. And then after that, I did classing classifications. So how was, how was day one of boot camp for you? Did you know what to expect? No, no. But uh, I enjoyed every minute of uh, basic training because, you know, you start at the bottom and you, you rise to the top. You are probably the only human that I, I can think of right now that would say that they enjoyed basic training. I got a lot out of boot camp. I'm not going to say I enjoyed it, <laughs> but no. Um, so how was your, how was your company going through? Were you guys, um, trained harder, different? Did, what was like an average day for someone in the combat arms going through boot camp? Oh man, we everywhere we went, we never went anywhere alone. We were always taught that if you went out alone, you had to let somebody know what was going on. And you weren't even allowed to go anywhere alone. So I'll just put it to you that way. We were never alone. We always had to do something with a drill sergeant or something like that everywhere we we were. And we trained almost like pretty much almost like 18, 20 hours a day. We're out there doing stuff. So were you guys doing a lot of uh, field exercises and going out? Yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of those. You did uh, four or five of them, actually. So I don't know if you heard about the guy. Um, I don't know exactly where it was at, at Army Boot Camp, who got so frustrated with being in the Army that he took his weapon and hijacked a school bus recently. No, Probably, actually, I did not hear that. Yeah, he um, somehow he got out of the barracks with his weapon and ran into i i'm i can only assume a school bus that was on base maybe picking up kids to go uh out to drop them off out in town for school and hijack the bus where was that where was that at i'm trying to remember i want to say it was on the east coast um it's actually caused the army to rethink whether or not uh recruits get to have their weapons with them all the time yeah um well we didn't have ours at all times, you know, like when you were, um, and or easy access to a little them. bit of rest. Yeah. So. I, I, I think they meant more of, I guess you guys have your weapons at least in your, um, in your birthing space. Yeah. So I guess they were talking yeah, about we all weapons. Close by. Yeah. I guess they so were talking we're, about Oh, I was just saying that I guess they're talking about now, even for the infantry guys, your your weapons are to be turned into the armory at the end of every evolution that you need them versus keeping well, them in your birthing. In at the end of the day, usually, yes. Okay. So, um, and I, I have to ask everyone this because I always find it interesting to, to get people's reactions. So at some point in time during your basic training, they took you to a room. And they put a mask on your face, or you put a mask on your face that had a canister on the side of it. 
and you did some CS gas training or tear gas training. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. How was your reaction in the gas chamber? You know, it's a, this is a funny story because, you know, a lot of people probably are not going to believe me on this, but I promise you, I'm not lying about this. I got along with a lot of the people, as you know, I'm kind of a social butterfly. I like to try to get along with all the people around me and try to earn their respect and trust. And I went into the gas chamber and we, we you know, we recited, we talked, we were doing what we were supposed to. And we came out and everybody that I knew was cheering my name. All my friends were, you know, cheering my name and, you know, making me feel good about it. And it was, it was really, it was really kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> So how how did the gas affect you though? Well, yeah, you got your tears flowing, you got the runny noses, and you kind of get a cough in there. I mean, but you know, it it does make you uh, it it, it is uh not very easy. Let's just say that. Yeah, that's for sure. Did anyone try to bolt? Anyone try to run out of the room that you remember? No, no, actually, nobody ever tried. Not not that I noticed, and and um. Usually it was the first one in the line because we went in in lines with like 10 others. It was like like 10 or something at a time that went in. And usually the first one usually busted out of the door, but everybody else came out right after. So nobody tried to escape that I know of. Nice. So after all of this, you're doing your field exercises, you're getting your gas, you're marching, um, you're doing your inspections and you guys probably did inspections just like we did once a week, full barracks inspections, field days on what is it for the Navy? It's field days for the Navy and Marine Corps on Thursdays is typically your field day, head to toe cleaning of the lockers and the barracks. At what point in the army? Cause typically uh, in the Navy, it's within that last two weeks that you go from dirt bag recruit to you're 90% a sailor. And I think it's about the same it, with the Marines. It's after the crucible, they give you your Eagle globe and anchor. And then the next couple of weeks, it's not easy, but it's not as hard as it was. They treat you more like a Marine. Is there a point in the army when you go through a final test and then they basically say, welcome aboard soldier? Well, okay. But before before I get into that, can I can I ask you one one question? Being Navy, yeah. You ever seen the movie Too Young a Hero? Uh, no. Too Young a Hero. It's currently on Netflix right now, and he was the youngest person to ever join the military, and he actually served on the battleship the USS South Dakota. Oh, thanks. I know that so, there that there were some. I want to say like sixteen year olds that had gotten into the. Uh, the military in World War II. Well, this is the twelve-year-old. So. Oh wait, what? Yes, seriously, honest to God, true story. Look it up. It's too called young too to young serve. Girl. It's about Calvin Graham. But oh, okay, I'm going to look it up. As far as ours, as far as our army stuff goes, we had a thing called Turning In Day and Family Day, where we turned in all of our equipment, and the, the Family Day was the day before graduation. And all the drill sergeants started treating everybody like regular, you know, soldiers to know to be back at a certain time to to report and to make sure that you were accounted for. 
after the family time that you spent, you had to be back at a certain time. And then the next day was your graduation. Okay. So did you guys have a big closeout exercise then? Like uh, one last big field exercise before you graduated? Yeah. Yeah. It was in the last, last phase, uh, a few days before family day, we had, we were out for a week, I think. Oh, wow. So you guys were getting your butt kicks basically. Yeah. Every day for seven days straight was our last one. So I know the army has multiple, uh, boot camps. Uh, I had a, I had a woman on Christine Martinez. She was a drill instructor, um, before she got out. So were you part of the combat arms? Were there infantry guys going through boot camp with you as well? Or were you all going to be combat engineers? Cause the army is kind of weird like that. Well, we're all combat engineers, but we did have, uh, um, when we got into our, uh, you know, we have what we call phases. So you have red phase, white phase and blue phase. And those are all phases of your training. And then you had your class phase, which was your black phase. And then the last one was your gold phase was the last one. And in black phase, we had uh, five or six people that were reclassing from one military, one army job to a different one to this one. So we did have reclassing students. Yes. Okay. Because you guys, um, I've noticed here in San Antonio with the 68 whiskeys, you guys keep your drill instructors with you through what we would call in the Navy, our A schools, our basic military MOS schools. So you went from boot camp where you were dealing with the smoky bear hat guys to then combat engineer school with those guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because a couple of them were actually good instructors and taught us some of the things that we needed to know. So talk to me about what a combat engineer is supposed to do a combat engineer is supposed to um clear explosives out of any danger zones for which other forces are going through like uh, uh, um any marines navy we're supposed to make sure it is safe for you to walk through such as if you're at the park for example okay all right. you, you know that the area is safe. You know it's secure. You know nothing pretty much is going to happen to you, right? Right. Well, for us, we have to have a greater understanding of the area around us. So if, like, you know how wartime is and you know how training is. So I'm going to walk through it like this. We cleared areas of mines, explosives, and stuff so that other people can go through and do their jobs safely without being injured or killed. So I know some of the people who are going to be watching or listening to this are going to ask, well, what's the difference between that and EOD? Uh, differences. Um, EOD comes only when they like, when we don't have the proper equipment to, to do a, a blow in place is what we call a BIP. And they only come to do that when, when they have the equipment and we don't. Other than that, we usually can handle our jobs successfully. Okay, so there there is a distinct difference though between what EOD does and what combat engineers do then. Right, right. So um, now, speaking of that World War II uh, kid, I hate to use that word for a guy who served on a 
on a battleship during World War II. But I know there's a lot of historic footage of the army crossing through Europe and building bridges and stuff. Is that part of the combat engineer's job as well? Like the yeah, pontoon uh, bridges? 12 Charlies. 12 Charlies. They're, they're also like almost like a bridge crew member specialist is uh, what they're specifically called. They do okay. have bridges that we can build on lakes. I have done some of that training, yes. Um, so we do know how to uh, mobilize what is immobile. Okay, so is is your school after boot camp, is it a general combat engineer school, or were you specifically trained to do what you ended up going out to do? It was a general engineering kind okay. of school. So from there, did they send you to a unit, or did you have to go to more schools after that? Oh, after that, uh, my first duty station was Fort Carson in Colorado. Man, you are not leaving very far from home. No, it was it was kind of weird, but you know, I I helped start a brand new whole company and battalion that was only had like well, fifteen or twenty soldiers, and we worked up to over two hundred and fifty. Oh wow! And we helped start a company. So you were what by then a private, private two? Uh, yeah, two. So what was that like being the new guy? At a well, being not only being the new guy, but being the new guy at a new unit. <laughs> well, it was it was a uh, very unique. I know I had to learn my place. I had to earn the trust and respect of the fellow soldiers around me, and I had to prove myself that I was that I was up to the challenge of of uh doing the doing the job at hand and protecting my fellow soldiers around me so what was a typical day like at fort carson well typically we get up do pt early early in the morning for a while and then afterwards we'd have a quick break and then we'd uh get to uh um we did a lot of training a lot of a lot of field training exercises. We did a lot of um, learning of explosives and technology and robots and all the armaments that we needed to handle on a daily basis. So what year was that? 2006. Okay. So um, by the, by October of 2006, I was in Iraq. Um, my unit worked closely with not just combat engineers, but with uh, EOD, Marine Corps side, and I think we had some limited Navy exposure. We were... Well, what was uh, that? When, was, when, when were you there? Uh, late 2006, so October 2006, and I left in March 2007. So, okay, by March of 2007, I was over there. So what part I was of there I, before that. What part of Iraq were you in? I was in um, Liberty, Club Liberty, over by Stryker. So you were out, you weren't in Al Ambar, were you? What? You weren't in Al Ambar, Fallujah, Missouri, or Fallujah, not Fallujah, Fallujah. No, it was over by Bob Stryker and Camp Liberty. There were so many, I just knew Al Ambar, so I knew uh, Fallujah, Ramadi, and Abu Ghraib, that area. Or more outside of Baghdad. 
Oh, okay. So, so what we did was we were route clearance or route maintenance, some, some stupid word like that. We basically drove around like dummies in circles for eight hours a day looking for IEDs. Then we would, then we would call, well, we weren't equipped or capable of doing anything with them. We found them and then we had to call EOD to come out and get rid of them. Well, let me rephrase that on several occasions, we did something about them. We got blown up, but, uh, yeah. So fortunately for us, they were usually small, uh, 60 millimeter mortars that did almost no damage, but, uh, that was our job was to drive around five miles an hour on MSR mobile looking for IEDs. And then we would call someone like, I guess, like you guys out or EOD typically is what we would do, uh, Marine Corps EOD. And they would come and do the blow in place or render it, um, render it safe and take it back to Fallujah. But well, we did. It sounds like we only need one of us in this conversation because you and I are the exact same. No, because I usually sat, sat in the back of the Humvee and slept. No, no, no. Sleeping is a no, no. Uh, no, no. Uh, when you're the never, second, ever. <laughs> when you're the second, third vehicle in the convoy, and you can't see shit out your windows. Actually, I didn't only sleep; I also monitored comms and maintained comms. So there was, there was a need for me. Thank God I didn't have to do my actual corpsman job much, which is always a good thing. So for you guys, um, speaking of corpsman. What was your typical compliment like when you guys went out? You guys went out with X amount of vehicles. You had a bunch of combat engineers. Did you take infantry guys with you for security or were you guys providing your own security? Did you have medics with you? We had medics, yes. And we we did our own boots on ground store. So we were uh, constantly even moving or in the vehicles or we were Boots on ground. Yeah. So what was your, I guess I should ask. So you go, you go to Fort Carson, you stand up this new unit with everybody else. And at some point in time, you guys get the orders. You're going to Iraq. What was that conversation like with your family? Telling them that you're heading out. Well, you know, it's, it's always, it's always scary at first time. Cause you know, family's always scared for you scared for your life and you know rightfully so you know you know i've learned that if i went in there cocky oh i'm gonna do this oh, i'm gonna do this if you're a little nervous then that keeps you more alert yeah so that's how i've learned how to deal with it and and being it being it was the first time yeah you know it's it is what it is you know you just gotta be there for your family and let them know that they're you're here for them and they're here for you so so what was it like when you got boots on the ground when you actually said hey i'm in iraq because 2000 well i kind of wondered if i didn't even have time to say that (laughs) i was just focused on my job and the task at hand and what i had to do to protect those around me and to make it safe for everybody to to not have to worry or think that oh something bad's gonna happen to me tonight or something bad's gonna happen to me today or or this is this is really you know nerve-wracking people were always scared and there's nothing wrong with that it's just 
no, Stuff that we had to go through we had to protect those around us yeah it's a it's a normal human reaction when someone's trying to kill you did you so everyone comes in through a mar, what i call a marshland area so like for us we flew into takatum and then we base out of fallujah did you guys go into biop baghdad international or did you how did you guys get from kuwait to iraq um I think we came in through um, Al Yasalim. Know where that's at? In uh, kind of in, northwest um, or northeast. Yeah, yeah, that's where we came in from. Was Al Yasalim? Okay, so from northern that, part, yes. Yeah, northern part of Kuwait. Yeah, and then we came in from there, and then went to. Um, I think we got, we got stuck in Qatar for a couple of days because of a sandstorm. And then I think we came in near somewhere near Baghdad, but I, I, my memory is kind of fuzzy no worries, on that man. one. No, no worries, man. So, um, how long did you guys do in Iraq your first tour? Uh, first time the unit was, was already there. Most of them were already there. I, I joined up with them. Uh, uh, I was there for uh, six months on my first one. Okay. So we were there for about the same amount of time, uh, probably just a little bit different. Did you go over during the summer or the winter? I actually went over during the uh, kind of like, like you said, in between the spring and fall or spring and winter, spring and summer. Okay. So how was your, <laughs> see, we were there. Um, from fall to spring so we got really all of us got really surprised on how cold iraq gets um we were fortunate enough not to have the heat hit us while we were there what were those summer days like for you um how can i how can i put it i mean it it is it is a dry heat so it really does hit you i mean you really do have to hydrate a lot um it, it does like uh 100, 120 gets pretty warm and you're in you're in uh back then they really didn't have the frog suit so you were in acus mm-hmm. black That's kevlar right. and i'm pretty sure your guys's vehicles if they had the ac units attached were just as bad as ours yeah, probably. I'd, I'd have to put that on the same peg, I'm sure. <laughs> it was uh, definitely interesting. You so sweated it, a lot. So as you were there for the season change, did it feel like things got more aggressive the hotter it got? Uh, you know, I, th- I think so. I think, uh, I, think uh, I would say on my experience, yes, most definitely. Because it felt like, you know how you say, when things get hotter, tensions rise up. Yeah. It's almost like the exact same things. When it got warmer out, more activity was going on because people could be out and doing things it's as opposed to being stuck in when it's cold and people can't handle the, the, the temperature's differences. But when it's hot, I mean, more people are out doing things, so you know activity's going to spike. Yeah, I can tell you in the dead of winter, um, mid to late January, we went a couple of weeks without ever finding an ID. And when it was 
late October, we were finding them almost every other day or every day. So I can tell you from the winter side, yeah, it definitely cooled down over the summer side or assuming what the summer side was. So as combat engineers, I know you guys go out and deal with ordnance. Did you have to deal with gunfights? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've, I've been, we've been shot at a few times more than you, I want to admit. Do you remember your first firefight? I do. Yes. We were, do you, uh, do you want the details or do you want a little bit kind of like a quick well, five I'm, second? I'm more curious on what was going through your head when you first realized you were under fire. Well, when you when you first get the contact, you wonder where it's coming from. You have to stay right, left contact. Uh, you know, you have to say what right or left or where it's coming from. Uh, what was going through my mind is, okay, now it's time to to cover those around me and make sure everybody's safe and nobody gets hurt. And how did you feel about that, though? Did you put your personal feelings aside or did you have that natural, please don't let me get shot feeling that most of us have had when we've been in gunfights? No, I had a little bit of that, but more of like, okay, now I'm, I got to be in protective mode. I have to do my job, do what I was trained to do and, and protect my fellow brother or sister. So when, when you guys were out there, were you guys getting uh, into the gunfights as you were doing your job or were these secondary to going out and doing clearings? Both. I'd have to tell you both because we've had secondary where we haven't found anything and we were just in the crosshairs of crossfire attacks and stuff like that. And then sometimes we'd have... We, We'd be set up for what it seemed like a, a long fight. So they would they would go set something on the road, know you guys were coming out, and then set up an ambush. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did you Kinda guys happen both ways? Did you guys have a lot of civilian traffic where you were at? You know. Not really. We sometimes did, but sometimes not. I mean, if we saw people walking around, we knew that things were more careful. We're, we're, we knew that it was kind of safer in those areas. But in the areas where you didn't see anybody, you, you just had to know that something was going on. So you guys were more in a, uh, an urban environment than I'll take it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we were, we were out, um, on the highway. I mean, no different than point to whatever local highway you have two, two lanes looks like highway 10, or I really wish I knew up North a little bit better. I'd give you something that you would probably uh, be able to well, reference. We're high by highway one and highway two. Okay. We, we did those areas as well. Our, our whole route was just staying on these highways. So when I when we dealt with civilians, we're talking about people transiting from Baghdad out to the Syrian border and back, getting water. Uh, you would see. I don't know if you know the old bongo trucks. 
But those, oh yes, I remember bongo trucks. I have this great picture. I'm gonna have to post it on the Modern Ronin Instagram if I can find it. Of a guy driving a bongo truck with these couple hundred, if not half a thousand, or not half a thousand, five hundred gallon uh, red water containers on the back. They were empty, and he probably had fifteen or twenty of them. They look like a flower rising out of the bottom of a blue bongo truck. And these guys were just trying to get supplies back and forth between uh, the Syrian border and Baghdad. And our whole mission was to keep that road open, not just for us, but for them. And it seemed like the insurgents sometimes wanted to target the civilian traffic more than they wanted to target us. Yeah, you know, you just, you had... You had to watch what you were doing at all times. And yes, what I've seen, I remember those bongo trucks and them doing supply runs and stuff like that. But even then, it was just like they were trying to close everything off to keep everything, how can I put it, almost segregated their apart. We had to, they had to determine the, you know, where they were going to do the most lethal. Yeah. Were you guys dealing with both Shia and Sunnis? Because you were in the, you were generally speaking in the Baghdad area, right? Right. Where I, was, I, I would say, yeah, I, I think uh, as my memory serves, I think we did have to deal with both kinds of uh, people. But you know, at the same time, I'm not going to go and say everyone is bad because that's that's not correct for me. Oh to no, say. no, no, no. What I was suggesting was there were so much tensions in 2006, 2007 between the two sides that a lot of it spilled over. So it wasn't them just attacking us. It was them attacking each other. And sometimes we'd get caught in the crosshairs for where, right. we, for where we were at. We were deep in Sunni country and short of someone coming up to do a suicide bombing or one-off pot shots. We didn't see a lot of, uh, a lot of the civil war type stuff that was going on in Baghdad at the time with Sadr city and all of that. So how did your first deployment end up wrapping up? Did you guys come home pretty unscathed or did a lot of bad things happen on that deployment? Uh, we didn't come off unscathed, but we didn't come off with the whole hit list. We kind of were in between the lines on that one. Uh, we, we, we were in the Shiite Sunni you know, crosshairs a couple of times. Where it was like we're actually like in between one one was on the left side, one was on the right side. We just had to determine what was, you know, it was it was it was pretty harsh times there uh for a little bit. So did you guys take any um IED hits yourselves? Um yeah, we took a couple, but nothing um significant or substantial that was highly measurable i guess you yeah. could say so you guys come home you're you're back in the states you're you're branded you're nothing's you made it um how was that homecoming for you when you saw your family uh it was good they were uh all happy you know how mothers cry and and fathers kind of laugh about that and you know your siblings are happy and you know, it's just, it's a very warming. So what about your uncles and your grandfathers? 
who served? Did they, did you get a talk with them? Did any of them serve during a combat time? Uh, my, uh, grandfather served during Vietnam era. Uh, he was a minute man, missile sites in, uh, in, uh, um, here in Ellsworth air force base. And, uh, my great grandfather was in Pearl Harbor when they were attacked in so, that battle so he served in that in uh several battles of the marshall islands and uh um my uh one of my uncles actually served in desert storm so did you how did you guys ever talk i mean as now people who had been like your was your great-grandfather still alive when you came back from iraq no he was not but your uncle that served in Desert yeah. Storm. Yeah, my uncle that served in Desert Storm is uh, still alive and well. Did you did you and him talk? You know, kind of that. Hey, we've both been to combat, and if you need if you need to talk, did he was he there for you? Right, right, and I was there for him. Yes, yeah. we we did have that bond with all my uncles and all my and my grandfathers, and we all had that strong connection. You know, before when we were younger, we we were always there for each other. Very loving family. Oh, good. I just meant because you you now come back from combat, and having a family member who's also been to combat is a helpful thing. Right. So, where did you go after Fort Carson? Um. Well, I well when I came back to the states for the first first one, I was uh, in Carson. And then I was back in um, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri at the engineering school, spent some time over there training um, and teaching others and um, ended up going to Stafford school. So how was, uh, how was it being an instructor? Well, I wasn't an instructor. I was, I was, I was, I was uh, um, helping out the instructors with uh, uh, training stuff that we're going through, like, um, land navigation and things like that and we're all working kind of together to to uh get a greater understanding of where we're going in iraq and afghanistan to get more familiarized with territories that were more unknown to some oh, okay so now i have seen a lot of the sapper guys i have seen the, the sapper badge the the way that i understood it and i don't know a lot about sapper is some Vietnam portrayals of what they would call sappers carrying um, carrying bags of explosives and going and setting booby traps and going to bridges and you know setting explosive on explosives on bridges and being the guy with the little plunger and blowing stuff up. What is a real sapper do? Real sappers do kind of that stuff. We also do um, uh, medical training, uh, navigation training. Uh, we we work with our ex- explosives all the time. We trained in um, radio communications and things like that. You know, a survival training. Um, so we had to learn all all sorts of stuff like that. So, what exactly is? How do I say this? What does sapper actually mean? Like, what's the definition of a sapper? The, the definition of a sapper is an expert in their field where they can 
they can adapt into any environment and help to uh, help those around them in, in, in tough situations and know how to react and, and know how to solve any problems or like if I needed to do cert- anything certain, like specific, they would be able to instruct and help and, and do that kind of things. And we were experts in, in explosives and land navigation and medical and search and rescue and all sorts of different environments for which we needed to understand. Oh, okay. So now I think a lot of people confuse, and I'm talking generally speaking, people see the sapper badge and think it's an element of special forces or green berets. Did you ever look at going that route? Yeah, I have actually. Uh, um, I always thought about it, but you know, uh, sapper school is, 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 is not, not for the fan of heart. We'll say that too. How long was that course when you went through it? Uh, we did it for a month and five days. Oh, okay. So did you, uh, where'd you go after you got your sapper badge? Uh, I, I was uh, back to uh, Fort Carson, and then uh, from there in 2009, we got sent to Afghanistan. So how much of a difference was that to you between Iraq, heavily urbanized for where you guys were at, to now you're going to Afghanistan? Um, and I have you haven't told me where you went, but I'm assuming it was nothing as urban as Iraq. No, it was definitely not. We were, uh, if you know any of the areas, we're at places called Fretneck and Leatherneck and Wilson and Bramrod and those areas. Uh, we are actually at one of the bases that was actually had more civilians on it than any military personnel because they were, we had geologists who were working on water conservation and uh looking for water and stuff like that. So we also had to deal with more civilians in certain areas than we had to deal with military. So were you guys, okay. So you said Leatherneck. I know where Leatherneck is. Leatherneck and Baston were down in Helmand. So were you guys down in that area? Yeah, we were. And uh, and there were geologists? Uh, yeah, we had geologists. Wow. And we actually, well, Bob Wilson, I don't know if you remember, was previously controlled by the Canadians. It was a Canadian fob that actually had howitzers. Oh, nice. Did Were, were the Canadians as kind as everyone says that they are? Yes. <laughs> I keep forgetting that you live in South Dakota, so you, Canada is not that far away from you, um, which makes that even weirder that you guys went to a Canadian fob. So um, go, going there and... Like I said, Iraq, super urbanized, super wow. Um, yeah, it's a it's a different architecture, but the road and the road systems aren't that much different than here, at least from what I saw. You know, the same type of signage that you would see on I-35 here is very typical to what you would see in Iraq to, I'm assuming, a lot of helicopter flights, a lot of dust a lot of dirt roads and probably a lot of foot patrols, right? Right. 
I'll tell you, a gas station over there is very unique. It's not like looking at one here. <laughs> you know, I never even thought about that. Like how, when you're, I've seen pictures, because I've never been to Afghanistan, but I've seen pictures and video of guys going through a typical uh, Afghani village in the middle of Helmand or in the middle of outside of Kabul, you know, outside of the large city center of Kabul and it's mud huts. And I never even thought like, how do you get gas other than a whole bunch of uh, jerry cans? So what was that shock? What was that like for you? You're, you know, at a true fob at this point in time. Well, we usually had ours on uh, big trucks, you know, like, uh, like what you would like, what you would see at a typical airport. You see those airport fueling trucks, right? Yeah. That's what our trucks looked like. We had those that had the fuel that we needed. And so that we could do our missions. We had trucks like that. And what a gas station looked like over there is what I, from what I recollect is, um, you remember the old um, 55 drum drums? The big oh, yeah. Drums. Yeah. yeah we'd see those filled with, you'd see those, and you'd see like a gas station nozzle, and that's how they would fill up their vehicles with gas. And that's all they had out there. I mean, it didn't even look like anything remotely that we would see out here. That's crazy. So, what was your typical day like in Afghanistan? Always on alert, always on guard. If things were silent, you knew something was about to go down. Um, there was always constant activity. You know, even the villagers, people were out, out doing things constantly every day. Um, we could actually hit a market or two and see people selling fresh fruits and vegetables and stuff that they have grown. And so we did see activity like that on a daily basis. And we, you know, we usually came across other forces like, uh, the Canadians. We also worked with um, some of the Dutch, the Australians. So we worked with other foreign countries as well as our own. Were you doing, uh, were your presence patrols, were those foot or were those in vehicles? Both. We did Which... mechanized and unmechanized. We were boots on ground with uh, mine detectors and we're constantly watching the sides of the road and looking for indentations and looking for anything that was out of the ordinary, anything that would look fresh. We were looking constantly for everything because we're not, like I said, we're not only doing it for American forces. We're also working with the Canadians, the, the Dutch and other foreign countries as well, part of the UN. Right. So now did you, um, did you have a preference when you guys went out on patrol for yourself? Did you prefer to go on foot or in vehicles? Me, I preferred to be on foot because then I could feel like I could, I could see things easier and I could, I could, if, if anything was different that I could see, I could see it from further away as opposed to, you know, being up close and personal. You, you, we, uh, I always liked being on, on ground. Yeah, I if if I had the choice, I would have preferred walking. There's something reassuring about an up armored Humvee, but also really discouraging about being in an up armored Humvee. So 
now was it a kinetic time in Afghanistan when you were out there? Was there a lot of um, fighting going on? Well, you say that a question again. I'm sorry. Was there a lot of fighting going on when you guys were out there that time? Yeah, yeah, we were never alone. I'll tell you that we're usually always battling. I think I lost you. Brandon? Here and there doing all sorts of different Oh, okay. Yeah, you, you cut out there for a second. So you were yeah, saying you were saying that you that that you were getting harassed a lot out there by by the Taliban then. Right, right. We we're it, it almost seemed like every day there was there was always something going on or something to look out for. And so no, we're uh we're pretty active, I'd say. So in terms of of the fight, did it did the I know the terrain and the environment was a different than I than Iraq, but was the type of fighting different out there in Afghanistan? It was almost like guerrilla warfare. I mean, we had um I've had RPGs launched and then you know people would just run away and you know mortars and stuff like that. I mean it was just kind of like really close to guerrilla warfare is what I would compare it to. So how long were you guys out there that time? Uh we're we're there for almost a year. I was there for eight months before I got before I got wounded over there. So do you mind talking about that? Um no, I don't I don't I don't mind if you want anything specific, just ask them and I can tell you better. So do you remember that day? I do. Was there anything we're doing a clearance patrol um out of Fob Wilson and we're going to uh, a new fob, very new fob that they had just just put on ground called Ramrod. And that was controlled by Fourth Infantry Division. And um we had we were the last vehicle to go through in the convoy is what I was told, but I don't remember it that way. But anyway, from what I was told, we were the last vehicle in what we thought was a was a culvert, and we thought we thought we saw some wires protruding from there, and we ended up getting hit with I think it was like eight to twelve hundred pounds of homemade explosive. Ooh, completely flipped our vehicle. That's an ouchie. So was yeah, there? Any... And the... Go ahead. No, and if, from what you've seen from me, I look pretty good. But you we did, do. I did lose a friend of mine, and uh, and then in October, after I got wounded, another another group of ours got wounded as well. So we lost five over there in my platoon of thirty. Oh, geez, man. So, do you remember the day, like prior to the hit? Did it seem any different than any other day? No, everything just. Every day there was something going on. So it was it wasn't anything out of the ordinary that we weren't already used to. We were constantly doing small arms, you know, we, we found caches, we found explosives, we, we would destroy explosives almost on a daily basis. So it was really nothing out of the ordinary that we haven't seen before. But that day it was it was a, it was pretty it was a pretty hard day. I mean I remember afterwards, I was hanging upside down, and 
I was covered. I was soaked from oil and gas, and they had dust and oil and gas embedded in my mouth and in my throat and all over my body. And and I, um, I remember I cut my seatbelt that I was in, my harness that I was in, I cut that with my knife and I wasn't able to move or get out. I had to be dragged out by some of my friends. Did Were you guys in uh, MRAPs or Humvees? RG31s, if you know what those are. So were those the big, big guys? They were smaller than MRAPs, but they oh, were okay. bigger than Humvees. They were the in-between, so it's a mine rollers. Okay, if yeah. You were, I, if you did what I did, you know what I'm talking about. Well, we we like I said, we were the bait. You guys came out after us, and with the Marines, um, they always rolled out in Humvees. But then we did some patrols with the um, oh god again with the with one of the Army EOD units that had it was a this was 2007. This was the first time we'd ever seen anything other than Humvees. So they had. And I just remembered they were named after animals. They had the 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 badger. You're talking about the buffalo with the arm. Yeah, the buffalo. The, that was a huge guy. And then they had the smaller, what would become the MRAPs. And then they had a smaller, smaller one. I want to say it was like a bobcat or something like that. I don't remember the names. Uh, we dealt with oh, those yeah, guys we twice. Called that the husky. That was That's actually, it. it was the husky. Like a, well, it was like a construction grader with, with two less wheels. Yes, that was a that was the that was the one I felt bad for. That guy, that guy looked like he was just gonna get nailed no matter what. But so well, yeah, we actually we kept our husky driver pretty safe for the most part. So yeah, just I didn't I would not want to be the husky driver. Go through it. <laughs> but um, well, actually, I do have a funny incident about that. Uh, one of our husky drivers was actually an an transfer from the navy and he has somehow had um gotten one of the mine panels knocked off and he didn't have any explosives or anything he just damaged the vehicle not driving properly i'm gonna i'm just gonna put it to you that way but my my uh my platoon sergeant said to me he says stack get on the blue get on the bft blue force tracker talk to our unit let them know what's going on and see what you can do about getting us new mine panels for this husky and i was like okay i'll do it i'll do whatever i need to to get the proper equipment right are you with me so far buddy? oh yeah yeah I'm, I'm with you okay so here's here's where it gets funny the only way to get mine panels in was they had to get flown in and the civilians were the ones who were civilian contractors were the only ones controlling the mine panels. So the only way they would deal with somebody is if you were at least a colonel or above. Oh, geez. So I, I told them, I was like, look, I need these and I need them now. Either I'm coming over there and getting them myself or you're bringing them to, to me. And he said, well, you're not a colonel. So I says, I don't care if I'm a colonel. I want this done and I want it done now or I'm coming over there and we're going to have some problems. And I, you know, I, I told him, I was like, I need this done. It's an order from a general. And he says, Oh, which general is that? 
I just ran up a name off the top of my head, and I'm trying to make it sound legit. <laughs> Brandon, did you do something? Did, did you do something slightly dishonest there? Sometimes you have to improvise with that. You know what I'm talking about. I, I know exactly what you're talking these about. Civilian contractors don't exactly know what we go through on a daily basis. Oh, so I, agree. I did what I had to. And I got those mind panels flown in the same night. And that guy was there and he wasn't really happy with me. But at the end, we all kind of laughed about it. So it was kind of just one of those things that you just had to let slide by. Yeah, no, no, I totally get that. So, yeah, we have definitely reallocated supplies, especially being with the Marines who don't have a good set of supplies on many occasions. And when you're in a war zone, you have to do what you have to do to support your unit. So not going to hold that one against you. But let's let's go for back. Anything you should give me kudos for that. I, I am giving you kudos for that. So let's go back to that day. Um, the boom goes off. You were hanging upside down in your RG45, which I mean, for people who I'm going to give, I'm going to trash this description of it, but it's almost a small box truck size vehicle raised with huge tires. If you were to look at the, the dimensions of it, it's not something that easily flips is what I'm getting at. Right. Right. That's definitely sure. And yeah, I remember after being cut and dragged out and one of my friends that I went to basic training with, we went to the first duty station together, went overseas together and pretty much were, were together for years and years and years. And we're still really good friends. And I can tell you that he remembers that day just as much as I do. Oh, I believe it. I mean, there, there are a few things that I don't necessarily have good, a good visual on, but I remember my day very, very, very clearly from the time I was conscious. So did you lose consciousness that you remember? Yes. I, I, well, from what I was told, like I said, you know, I did, I was, I was out for, Probably a good four or five minutes. Was that be so? Did you lose conscious at the blast, or did you lose it after you tried to get yourself out of the vehicle? It was. It was during. It was like as the blast happened. I. Okay. I was instantly gone. I was out for a while, and then afterwards, I came after the after it happened. I came to yeah. You know, I didn't even ask you. Do you what position were you in? Were you driving? Were you VCing? I was actually in the back of the vehicle controlling the uh, gyro cam, which is a camera that allows me to see something two miles away, like I'm standing right next to it. Oh, wow. Okay. That I didn't realize uh, you guys had that good of electro-optical equipment back then. So as you, as you were drug out, do you remember what was going on, what the medics were doing, or did they just hit you with some morphine and you went for a ride? Well, I remember being dragged out and I was talking to my body. I was telling him that because what had happened earlier, I kind of put myself in that was my fault sort of position. Like, you know how to hide, you know how you're hydrate over there. You know, you got to do that. And I was giving my, one of my buddies a, a drink and they were like, oh, well, this sounds good. So I was giving everybody drinks 
And as I was handing my buddy one, he was in the gunner seat. As I was giving him one, I don't remember if he ever got it. Oh, wow. So I don't know if it was my fault that if I took my eyes off the camera, if it was, it was part of me, I, you know, I just, I still have to to still have that. Was it me? Well, you know, if you have a camera that can see two miles out, chances are you're not looking 30, 20 feet ahead of you. That, well, that's, that's someone else's role. And especially if you're at the rear end of the convoy. That's how I see well, it. Well, yeah, but you know, you, you still, I, I still can't. It's, it's still a wonder in the back of my mind. You know, oh, yeah. it's, it's not going to be easy to get rid of, you know? No, no. And you know what? That, that's something that you need to, that you're going to work on for you. And it, it sucks because there, there's, I think for any of us who have been through kabooms in, or getting shot, there's always questions of, did we do everything right? Um, and I still, I still deal with it 14, 15, 14, 15 years later. So don't feel bad for it. It's something that you're going to figure out on your own time. And I think you're going to come out better for it, regardless of how you end up. Yeah. Yeah. It's just something that I'm just not going to get rid of. You know, like you said, it's, it's hard. It's, you know, it's a wonder and, you know, and actually, when I was in Walter Reed getting treatment, I actually met the mother of of my buddy who was killed. Oh, wow. And you can imagine how hard that was. Yeah. I know you have a big heart, too, Brandon. So to to jump back just for a, a second. So did they call a bird in and get you up to um, Bagram, then send you home? Or... Oh, we went, uh, I guess, um, as I remember, my, my buddy covered my eyes as the bird came in with the, you know, the dust and stuff that was flying around. And I remember getting the ACUs cut and I remember just my body just started like shivering, like, like I was out in the Arctic. I got really cold. And then one of the guys said to me, he says, just, just close your eyes, relax. It'll be all right. And then, then you're right. I went for the ride. <laughs> so, did, did was your main injury your TBI, or did you have some other physical wounds? I had uh, broken both my legs, fractured Ooh. on my heels, uh, fracture in my left arm, and complete fractures on my neck and spine. Oh, okay. That I didn't realize. I mean, I would have never guessed that seeing you just a few weeks ago yeah I, I i get around as much as i can because i i pushed myself as hard as i could so you so you went somewhere either to bagram or uh, i can't remember the name of the uh Kandahar the airfield is where we went yeah there well there's a it was level called roll three yeah there, there was a roll three at uh kandahar and at uh leatherneck and then i think Bagram was also a roll three, if not higher. Then you would have. We're been... closer to Kandahar because that's where we're out of. Oh, okay. Do you do you remember getting there and going through Kandahar, or is that just all what was told to you? All what was told to me because I once I once I 
once everything happened, I was on the bird. That was it. I don't remember anything else. I don't remember. I remember being told that when I got to roll three, that uh, our first sergeant and commander were all there and they were keeping eyes on all of us and all four of us making sure we're okay. And they were just, just, you know, keeping an eye on us and they were actually there is what I was told. So, so then more than likely you probably got bagged up and shipped off to, um, to Landstool, if not for a day or for a few days. And from there, they, that's when you would have got on the, probably the C-17 that would have taken you back to Andrews and then to Walter Reed. You, right. But I was in Germany for two weeks before I was anywhere else. Okay. So do you, do you remember Germany or were you out in Germany? Well, the story is, okay. Um, I was there in a drug induced coma. So I wasn't really there for it. I was just there. Yeah. And uh, my, my family couldn't be there cause they didn't have passports. So they couldn't be over there with me. Mm. Uh, my, my uh, uncle who had served in the army was over there cause he had a passport. So he, he spent time with me while I was there and told me that one of the commanders of the army at, I don't know which, I can't remember which one. I want to say Casey or it was, it was either General Casey or the other general I'm blanking on, um, gave me the Purple Heart there in Germany, but I was not awake for it. Oh, okay. So then you came home to Walter Reed and I'm assuming mm-hmm. yep. that's, that's the first time you saw your immediate family, your mom and dad. Well, when the first time I saw them there was a couple of weeks later, because I was still in a drug-induced coma for a while, recovering from the surgeries that I had undergone. And so I remember waking up and seeing what looked like a hospital room to me. And then I had, uh, I guess, choked on tubes that were in me. And I was out for 45 minutes and don't remember anything. And then I I came to and saw my family a couple of weeks after that. So I was out for quite a while before I even saw Right. So you saw them. So what was that reunion like, seeing them for the first time? Um, I, I knew that things were okay, that, you know, it was back in, uh, uh, a safe area. And then I knew that, that, uh, I was safe and I was really wondering about how everybody else was doing, how, how my, how all my buddies were doing, because they were all right next. One was on one side, the, the my TC was on the right side. He was in a different room and we're all right next to each other, basically. And um, my other buddy that was killed, I mean, when I saw his, I saw his mother, it was, it was, it was really, it was really hard to, uh, we both, we both cried a lot. I'll just put it yeah. that way. You know, it was really hard to deal with. I can and imagine. So I, I actually got, you know, well, about the same time we all saw each other then. So it was, a, it was probably about a good month before 
I was actually awake to see my family. So now, as you came out of the coma and you're, I don't want to say mobile, but you're you're becoming more and more aware of what's going on. Did you think you were going to be able to stay in? And did you want to stay in? I wanted to stay in, yes. But I didn't know how I was, how all my therapies were going to go and how I was going to get better and what I was going to do to achieve that. At that time, it was it was pretty difficult to imagine what was going to go on in the near future. But I knew I had to push myself every day and work hard to uh, become mobile, to to actually eat regular foods, to learn how to walk again and do all that stuff. I had to learn all that over again. So how long were you at Walter Reed then? I was at Walter Reed for pretty close to a pretty close to a year, I'd say. Oh, okay. So you went through a lot of intensive um, intensive recovery. Did they send you over to? Oh, why am I drawing a blank? Damn it! Um, the big TBI facility over there. Um, what the heck? Well, I had to go through my physical therapies and stuff before I could be. At the, the brain injury clinic, which you're which you're talking of, yeah, um, that was part of the TBI. I I had to go through ther- those kind of therapies first before I was over there. Oh, okay. So did so they sent you over to NICO then? No, after Walter Reed, when I was doing my therapies, they sent me to um, the Minneapolis Polytrauma Facility. Oh, okay. part of the VA for because they were specialty. They were special in um the injuries in my neck and spine and tbi they were experts in that field so do you remember the point in time when it came clear to you that you weren't going to stay in that you were going to get med boarded out uh that time i knew it was when it was coming but i i had i was i was going on a day-to-day basis where i was just working on getting better getting stronger and uh, I was more working on that first before anything else. Yeah. So when, when the med board did come through um, and you were medically retired, did you, what did you, I, I struggle with trying to phrase this the right way. Um, but I know a lot of veterans, including myself for the first few years, um, never wanted to leave the military we wanted to serve our 20 25 30 years if we could and the game plan never included getting out way early do you remember what you what you what was going through your head when on your last day in you know what was going through my head is i know this sounds kind of weird but when i was doing some of my treatment i actually met um the uh dean of a major university at south Dakota school of magic technology who invited me to go there to do education to to, uh do my degree in atmospheric sciences which is what i did now and he you know being a purple heart you know you get your schooling taken care of so i knew that i had some a good plan in action to maybe do that 
And I also went out and um, did qualifications for search and rescue and for first responder and that kind of stuff because I knew that I needed to actually keep serving whether it was military or not. Right on. And that's one of the things that that inspires me about you is how outgoing you are after everything you've been through. Every time I see you, you always have a smile on your face. So I always like to help everyone around me. You do. Now, so let me ask you this. So you get out, you're, did you feel comfortable going to school right away after you got out? Yeah, I actually did because uh, I knew that um, going in, I was probably one of the oldest ones going in. I was a, a fresh out of high school kind of guy, but I knew that that would give me more of a more of a, an advantage as to helping others achieve what I wanted to do in life and what, what they wanted to do and that my life experience would come out and help them out more so than it would have if I came right out of high school and just went there. That, that makes total sense. So was, it a, was there any culture shock dealing with or being surrounded by younger people um, that had no concept of military life? Well, I had a couple of people who were in my classes and stuff like that that were um, uh, their their parents were military, so a lot of them it wasn't really a culture shock of of any kind, really. So they because they knew what they were knew what military was up against. Okay. So now, how did you get involved with? or did you get involved with veteran programs like uh, combat wounded veteran challenge early on after you got out or did you just focus on education and that sort of stuff well i focused on education but i also helped start a um a veteran center to uh, for veteran students at the university who wanted a, a, an area for them to have a camaraderie level to help you know, others with education to, to broaden the spectrum of, of the university itself. Oh, okay. Wow. So you were doing all of this and you were freshly medically retired and you were, you know, a year earlier, you had been wounded badly. That's pretty damn amazing, Brandon. We all have to help each other, Tommy, you know that. Yep. So now, Let's jump up to Combat Wounded Veterans Challenge real quick. So you and I were both there in 2019. How much do you mm-hmm. think, how much did that help you? The sailing um, aspect. Well, it was, it was, it was uh, learning something new that I wasn't familiar with, but I've always had uh, a urge or craving to do it because I wanted to, kind of do that stuff because I've always had a fascination with boats and and going um, being on boats and sailing and I wanted to learn all that stuff even though I'm from a state like this I I still wanted to learn something like that because I had like I do have family on the east coast of Florida and I wanted to be able to do something and learn a new trade that I could pass on to to my family and that we could all do something as uh, like that together to uh, enjoy life better. 
So part of Combat Wounded Veterans Challenge is that you do some TBI-ish screening at the front end of the event, and then at the back end, you do it again to see if the uh, if the challenge itself has helped with your cognitive issues. Do you think it did at all? I think it did, yeah, because I feel like some some of my shorter memory, I think, is improved more than that more than my long term um remembering certain things or certain words or you know like that like short-term memory really helped me out a lot that makes sense so now you had mentioned um prior to talking about combat wounded veterans challenge that you went out and did some search and rescue certs have been over the last year with the pandemic and people, South Dakota's kind of infamous or famous, depending on which side of the political spectrum you sit on, um, has been pretty much open the entire pandemic. Did well, you not necessarily, not necessarily. Okay. Please correct me on that one then. Cause I, that's the way the news makes it out to be is that they've been pretty open the entire pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, though, I'm assuming a lot of people went out to nature and tried to, you know, get away and get outdoors. Did you have to use that skill set at all? Or are you active with any search and rescue units right now? I am, yes. And I did have to use that. I mean, I liked being outside. I'm not one to be locked in, sitting around. You know, I, I, I like to be active. And that's that's a big part of life is being active and doing things. and. And so, yeah, I mean, we weren't, we were shut down for, for a while during the time that everybody else was shut down. It's just that we opened up a little bit more because of our population was a lot less. And we opened up a little bit because we felt that, you know, with the wide open spaces that we had, we could still uh, keep a good control on things. Which makes sense. I mean, you're, I would guess that less than 5% of South Dakota has population in it. Well, we're more populated than you think, my friend. Oh, I'm just saying, if you look at the total land area of the state, the the population density is very small. Right, right. Yeah. For being the 16th largest state in the country in land size and being probably in the bottom, I'll say bottom 10 in, states and population probably i guess you can understand you guys are that big in land size yeah do you know that that map is deceivingly deceptive i would have figured from looking at the map you guys weren't much bigger than iowa we are substantially i guess from what i've been told and what i know of my own state i know we are the 16th largest we do have I want to say a million and a half. And so we're not huge on population, but it's like, it's not quite, you know, very populated, but we do have a lot of land and stuff like that. Yes. I, I, I'm pretty certain I can confidently say there are probably more deers in your state than people. Considering <laughs> you put that in with an S and the proper, it's deer, I know deer. No S, but I'll let that one go. 
There's probably more bears too. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, we do have bears. We have elk. We have wolves, coyotes, deer. We got pretty much a lot of what you can expect in a in a wooded area. So, how far away from um, are you, are you where you live? Are you out um, in the rural area, or are you closer to not the urban area, but more of the town area? I'm more in the town area. Yeah, um, where we have, like I said, we have a 150,000 where I live and beyond that it's it is pretty densely populated we we're not we're, or I mean it's more dispersed throughout right. the state so do you see yourself leaving South Dakota anytime soon not anytime soon but with, with before uh I do want to move uh relocate uh in the south where I have a lot of family in Florida I do want to go back over there with them and uh, be more active and do more things and stuff and not have to worry about uh, any snow days or anything being shut in. And I can concentrate on being with family and helping serve other people around me still. So Florida may be your next destination. You're picking states that seem to want to be open, which is a good thing, I think. So um, let's talk about April. So we did the last Veterans Challenge in April. How did you feel yes. about how did you feel about going back a second time? Did it come back to you pretty easy, sailing? Yeah, I think it did actually come a lot better. I mean, I felt more confident in um, helping um, a couple of guys. If you know, I don't know if you remember Aaron and Robert. Yeah. And yeah. I like I liked talking with them, showing them the book and how to handle stuff and the qualifications for which we went through the first time. And what, you know, I felt more confident to help those who didn't have knowledge on it. I mean, I felt a lot more able to do what we needed to do. For sure. Did you feel like uh, are you're the type of person I, I, I get the impression that you're the type of person that likes to be a mentor or a teacher? I do. I, I coach basketball and track at the, the church here that I go. I, I teach all the kids and I like to um, positively influence as many as I can. So regardless if you stay in South Dakota or move to Florida, it seems like giving back in some way or another is an important part of your life. Yes, most definitely, without question. So am I going to see you in September? Yes, you will. Now, if you move to Florida, are you going to buy a boat? That's a big if question. If I ever move to Florida, which I probably will, um, I'd like to get a small boat. Not nothing too huge, but enough where I can fit a few people on there. And go for it. Are you talking bay sailing or are you talking about going to the Bahamas? I'm talking like a sonar, like what we were on. Okay, that that this the the under what I think it's under twenty five foot, kind of the racing boats. Yeah, I like I like to I like, I think I could probably do well in those. So, what's your prediction for the rest of the year? Good sailing trip in September, or do you think we're going to get um hurricane out again or tropical stormed out again? Oh, you you Dave and I and. Who else was talking about this? I think it was 
you, the other Tommy, Dave, myself, Sammy, and Laura were all talking about this, right? And I think that my meteorological prediction was the day after the event ends is when a tropical storm will probably get into Galveston. <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope we have clear, sunny skies the entire time. Well, that's what I say. The day after the event ends, when everybody's oh, okay. gone, after yes, that a a storm will probably hit. But like you, I'm going for the clear skies and and beautiful sailing. Yes. So, Brandon, um, if somebody is looking for support up in your area, um, what's up there to support them? Well, I, I we disabled do have that. veterans clinics. And we do have a veteran center. We do have a lot of uh, uh, other supports. We have the VFW. We have Disabled Veterans of America. We have all sorts of different contacts and programs. Uh, Wound Warrior Project is is out here. We also have, um, you know, other veteran programs to to help others. We have Mission Twenty Two, which I'm a part of as well. If you know what Mission Twenty Two is, to um, actually, I I'm took- gonna be. I'm going to be talking to one of their founders here in the near future. Well, that would be very nice. I'd like to be a part of that because I actually took weeks and weeks of training in suicide prevention. So I, oh, wow. I that's why um, part of my job right now with the South Carolina National Guard is I am, I am a uh, specialist in um, kind of like patient care. Oh, so wow. I, I help the therapies and stuff like that with uh, others going through certain things that I can help them overcome I, and, and better themselves. I guess I didn't, I didn't even realize that. I, I thought that you may have been just a retiree who wasn't working. So you, you got a, a, a job with the South Carolina or the South Dakota, not Carolina national guard uh, as a right, civilian. Right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a special advocate for um, anybody who uh, needs kind of like a therapy care, like I can, I, I like I said, suicide prevention training, all sorts of things like that. So if anybody needs anything or any programs, I, I like to, ha- I help point out the right ways for where anybody needs to go. Well, I will link your Facebook profile to the show notes, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to tell you to give out your email or your phone number on here because you'll get crazy people calling you. Um, now, lastly, what do you expect for the future? Do you think we're going to have, everything's going to calm down now with the pandemic and with everything that was going on and we're going to get back to normal pretty soon? I, I think we'll get back to normal pretty soon. Yes. Um, I think more people are starting to realize that you know, when it's like we're not ta- we're we're taking an advantage, or we're losing advantage of like what we lost, and and now we're getting back out there. We're getting out the parks. We're doing grilling. We're we're out there having walks. We're taking our dogs out. We're you know we're starting to live life like we were before we even realized anything that was going on. Yeah. So now we're back into a state where we're getting used to being back out and doing the things that we used to do that we would call common. Definitely. Do you think, um, if, Oh, go ahead. If anybody, if anybody needs anything, please, you know, 
if they if you do want to pass on any info of mine i mean i have no problem with any crazy people calling me <laughs> if anybody needs help you know there's there's always if i can't do it i find someone who can because you know we do need to ultimately be there for each other definitely on that on that point but yeah i will put your uh i'll put a link to your facebook profile i'm i'm not going to take responsibility for crazy people emailing you or calling oh no no tom you know no offense taken you know you know because i'm a little crazy myself so (laughs) (laughs) you've seen that yeah so do you have any uh do you have any big um expedition plans are you going to try to go with uh combat wounded veterans if they do one of these mountaineering or scuba diving things I would love to. I would love to, but I'm um, waiting for Dave on the invitation for scuba diving, and I think that would be very great. I've never done that. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's something I've wanted to do as, as well, and I am an adventurer like you are. Yes, thank you. Well, hopefully in a few weeks, maybe a month or two before September, I'm going to try to get up there to look at that property in, in Wyoming. I will give you a buzz and we can connect. Yeah, sounds like a plan. And Sweet. I'll take you anywhere the, that you want to go and uh, be happy to show you around and get you familiarized with the area. That's a good thing. I'm going to go ahead and say thank you once again, Brandon, for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I learned more about you in the last hour and a half than I knew from seeing you over 14 days. So thank you, man. Well, thank you, my brother. And I know, I know, I mean, I, I may not look pretty good, but I try to do my best. No, you look fine, man. All right. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.